This program features interviews with people incarcerated or family members of those who are incarcerated with the Missouri Department of Corrections. Their names have been edited out for their protection. Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We're continuing our series looking at the Missouri Department of Corrections and their response to the COVID-19 pandemic, featuring interviews with those directly impacted by the Missouri Department of Corrections and their decisions. Joining me again today is Maria Miller, founder of Our Lives Matter and a leader with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing. Welcome again, Maria, and thanks for joining us again. Hi, Kevin, thanks for having me again. So can you update us on any uh, news from the Missouri Department of Corrections and their handling of the pandemic? What's been going on in the last month? Yes, I will first go back to, you know, last time we spoke, we did the call of action. We went up to Jeff City, um, Outside the governor's mansion, um, basically since then, um, we did get word that they're going to begin, as they say, they're going to begin doing video visitation. They're going to start off at Jeff City. So we're going to hold them to their word and we're going to hope that they get those incarcerated video visits so some of their family can see them for the first time in seven, eight months. So that's some good news that putting pressure on the system does present produce some results. It's a small step, um, and hopefully we can grow from there. Now, there's been uh, some other things going on um, regarding uh, the stresses on almost the entire correction system in Missouri uh, that's coming from the COVID pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, Kevin. I think since the last time you and I spoke, the Department of Corrections is relaying is there are now 20 deaths. 20 people have died from COVID. To my knowledge, that number has doubled in the last month. I think we did this a month ago. One is too many, especially when you could have avoided this. Um, Two is too many. So now we're up to 20 people. I was looking at some of these numbers with the staff, you know, um, Farmington, 518 offender cases. 150 staff cases. So far, Farmington is one of the highest um, facilities that with the COVID rise also have the highest number of staff. What's really weird to me, those incarcerated could not leave the prison when this pandemic started, right? Staff were allowed to come in there. They weren't being tested. Their temperatures weren't even being taken. They were allowed to walk around those prisons with no masks. So who really infected these people incarcerated with this pandemic? It's alarming at the number of staff that are, you know, tested positive at each one of these centers. It's like the staff have spread these among the prisons and it's okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about the interviews we're going to hear. Uh, it, this uh, man is incarcerated in Pacific. So one of the facilities that, that has had some problems with COVID. And we're also going to hear from his wife, who has been working on the outside to make sure that he is as healthy as he can be. And she has had struggles with that. Um, and there's a unique situation with uh, the person who's incarcerated. Uh, tell us about um, how close he is 
to to actually coming out out of uh, the incarceration system. Okay, he um, look that's that's the person I told you I met. She found a flyer and she contacted me. Now, as you said, this is the one person that I have advocated for with the least amount of time. He is an outdate in January. Okay. I actually contacted the parole board, Stephen Mueller. I have an email back from him. They were not doing any release. I was asking them to release him when he caught COVID in there. They're not doing any releasing. With Pacific Prison, that's where it was really out of control. People were rioting. That was one of the riots that happened. And with that being said, these people were outraged. People were laying around in the open bay, basically bodies on top of bodies. That prison never answered one of my complaints. So, and this is one of those instances where the person that's incarcerated is so close to finishing their, their time inside. And the question is, is why are they still there? What purpose does it serve? Um, and Missouri is a state that is not doing these early releases, even though states across the country are doing this. And, and you've said that New Jersey is a leader in this area. Yes, there's actually an article in the New York Times about this. And what's crazy, while the New York Times is posting a nationwide article about the release of those incarcerated due to the pandemic, here we are, our chairman, Don Phillips, sending out a letter to all the offenders, basically letting them know, we're not doing it, so don't, it, it's not happening. We're not releasing anyone due to COVID, which is horrible because you have... Now, as they're reporting, 20 people who have died in the prisons due to COVID, what if this person that we're listening to would have died? What if he would have died with the outdate of January? That's a death sentence and you were on your way home. And that's something we'll hear from his wife, too, about her fears of what's, what's happening um, while, while he is incarcerated. He's, he's so close to coming home and we want want that family to be reunited. And this is why I do this. As I told you, I lost a brother in prison from failure and neglect and incompetence. And I know what Missouri Department of Corrections did to my family and how they hid things and weren't truthful because they're never going to admit to their mistakes. So this is my number one reason for doing this, Kevin. My brother's gone. I don't want families to have to go through what I went through, what my mother went through, what his children are going through because the Missouri Department of Corrections failed us. See, the thing about it, my brother was stabbed, but when you look at Ann Precythe, Don Phillips, and the rest of these people in the high positions where they can make changes, and you're saying no, to me that's like taking a knife to their neck and stabbing them as well. But it's a slow death because now they have to suffer with the pandemic knowing that Corizon does not have the, the competence to take care of these men. And I think that's one of the things we're going to hear in this, this interview um, that we're going to take a listen to right now is that um, so much of what we've talked about is in their story. Uh, the neglect of uh, healthcare, just the basics uh, he talks about. Um, his wife talks about uh, the broken jaw and uh, him not getting uh, the proper liquid diet um, uh, to, to be able to stay nourished at that time. And then they also both talk about transferring prisoners in and out all the time uh, through Pacific and, and housing people together who 
um, both have the disease and who do not have the disease. So we'll take a moment here. We'll listen to uh, their testimonials and we'll be back afterwards and we'll wrap things up. Hey, I'm currently at Pacific um, Correctional Center. And so far what we're going through here is the COVID pandemic. Initially, we didn't have it for about, i say, since March, being the camp finally tested positive for COVID around six months after March, sometime around September. It was due to an emergency transfer. After the emergency transfer, it's very like wildfire. The new transfers that came here, they wasn't tested prior into entering general population. So basically, whoever approved the transfer allowed sick people to come on the camp and contaminate unsick people. The method they used to try to tame the pandemic, the coronavirus, was a failure. Eventually, 95% of the population ended up catching and including staff. Bars right now is still circulating. The, the nurses that work for Verizon here, unprofessional. They don't change their gloves when testing. You know, they're not considerate when they do rounds. Their equipment is not being sterilized. Uh, recently, I was uh, tested. I came up positive for COVID. During the time of me quarantining, they actually tried to bring another group of inmates in. While I'm trying to get better, it was a group of us in one housing unit and one went quarantine, and they tried to bring a whole new batch of people in that tested positive. Um, so basically what they're trying to say is like, hey, you got to be better on your own. They just threw us in jail. They were feeding us ice out buckets with trash bags. We didn't have warm meal. You know, we weren't allowed to get certain, certain generic Hygiene items from canteens to cope with what we needed when we sick far as cough drops, Tylenols. The environment we was put in to get better was essentially a hazardous. There was no, there was no uh, fire hiding. CO staff members, they didn't do rounds. They only came around probably once or twice to make sure Everybody was fed, that's about it, but they never did around, come around and, you know, make sure that we was all right and living in functional condition. Um, the virus is still occurring right now. There are still positive cases. I'm, as, as I'm speaking, I see, um, CO that came up talking to me a while back and she was, Puffy eyed and sneezing and coughing, and I just wonder how she make it through the front door. You know, if we're trying to get better and they still allow um, staff members to come in sick and they just ignoring the fact that it could be something besides the common cold, I don't understand how we should get better. You know, this is probably one of the smallest camps uh, the Department of Correction has. There's only four houses. Now, they the the correctional officer that you're speaking of, did she have on a mask and gloves? Oh no, she didn't have on a mask. Um, only time they really put on gloves is when they want to do a pat down and search a cell. And you know, you know now pat downs are kind of like 
you know, you really don't want to get pat down by nobody and this virus going around. It's, it's an eerie feeling, you know. Um, they're not they're not pushing the issue for other inmates to wear the mask. That's the biggest concern too, you know. I feel like if this is happening then if an inmate step outside they said they need to be out there on the bag. COs as well. Say all staff members are not wearing masks. You know. Uh, I was recently on outcount uh due to an incident I had and when I came back they had inverted one of the segregation wings into a solitary wing for quarantine. And basically all those guys in there was positive. The wing was Bob House Charlie, C wing, Bob C. And upon upon coming back, they actually put me in the wing with those offenders without testing you know, and when I tried to speak on my behalf, like, hey, man, I haven't even been tested. I've been outbound for surgery. Um, I'm probably getting put at risk. You know, I'm still healing. I haven't had the proper nutrients, so I can fight. I've been on liquidized. So when I spoke out on it, the staff member threatened to pepper spray me, you know, and then eventually I ended up catching a violation because, I couldn't stay quiet about it. I felt like my livelihood was in risk. So, you know, two, three days after that, you know, they decided to come move me after they made me home, after they made me use the shower. Nothing was sprayed down. They moved me to another wing. And this wing recently had COVID-19 cases in there. They were positive. So when I hit to that wing, not only was that wing, that, that cell, not only was the wing dirty, but the cell was dirty because people had just recently moved out of there a day prior. So let me just ask you, what, like, when you tested positive, what kind of care did the prison give you? Like, did they give you any kind of, um, what was the care like there? Well, basically, essentially, there was no care at all. Um, as far as Corizon, Corizon, only part Corizon played in there was coming by, taking blood pressure almost every four or five days. There was no care. The only care that was there is that we eat. Is there any, I mean, like, I don't know what it's like to, you know, be tested, you know, be positive with COVID, so I don't know, like, the way you felt or, so, or they giving you any besides the food and things like that. Is there any other care that, medical provided you all, like, for aches and things oh, like that. Yeah, I had plenty of headaches. You know, I asked for Tylenol. They were like, well, fill, fill out an MSR. And the MSR process is something you have to do every time you feel sick, you know, and it takes them up to five days. And I'm like, well, man, I've been sick for like two or three days. Y'all come here, I feel like y'all should have at least some Tylenol. So they wouldn't give you Tylenol? No, they wouldn't give me Tylenol. You know, they were trying to enforce the MSR process. And then, you know, we we were standing in line to get our blood pressure. Whenever they did come around and want to blood, give us blood pressure and check our heart rate. I mean, it was real nasty. They're using the same gloves. You know, they're not wiping down after each person. 
you know, they just using the same material. They coming in with the same batch of equipment, not sterilizing it, not doing anything. You know, we sending their back eggs. I, my personally, I had a couple. I had chest pain. I had shortness of breath. I had headaches. I wasn't giving anything. I was just told to lay down. You know what I'm saying? Let my immune system fight it off the best it can. You know, they didn't they didn't ensure us that we would be fine. They didn't try to educate us on what was going on. If I'm hearing you right, there's no special care um in Pacific is what we're talking about today, Pacific Correctional Center. There's no special care if you test positive for COVID it's just a normal, regular protocol. Oh, absolutely not. There's absolutely no care at all. It's almost as if they don't care and they want us to go ahead and figure out what what we're going to do. We're going to get sick, go to the hospital. It's like they don't care, you know. So there's not much that I could have done in my predicament. And like I say, I, I came back and I was exposed to it. And, and doing and doing, it's more so careless than it is to care for. Because if I'm in here quarantining and you decide you want to try to give me a celly, that's just now getting positive, and I'm in the second week of getting better. You know, that's not caring. That's, yeah. that's incompetent. It's failure and it's neglect. I mean, but I do want to just get on this before this phone call ends. I heard something that was very, very disturbing, that when um, they had an open bay area for those who had tested positive where there was no isolation, everybody just in an open bay breathing over each other, in pain, agony, um, is that true? Yeah, yeah they're not, they, they they absolutely did not enforce a rule to make people stay in their cells. So everybody's out coughing like it's a normal general population. It's not. You know, if you're going to help us get better, at least enforce rules that's going to help us get better. You know, we was exposed to this. We can't go nowhere. I have a husband named who's incarcerated at Pacific Prison, and I am complaining about issues and mistreatment and COVID issues at uh, the facility he's in. Recently, he has been tested positive for COVID, and my argument is how is COVID entering the prisons if the inmates cannot go anywhere? The staff is supposed to be held accountable for all COVID reasons entering the prison. And the mistreatment that's going on with my husband, James Stempley, right now is unfair and unhumanly. He's in a hole right now in segregation. And he's been mistreated. They had him in handcuffs pushed him in his cell, made him fall and break and fractured his jaw, and he has to go to the house to the Tuesday or Wednesday to get his jaw wired up, and he will have to have his mouth wired up for three to four weeks. And he's supposed to be on liquid diet, and they're not feeding him liquid diet. He hasn't eaten in three to four days now, and it, I'm really frustrated and mad about this whole thing. I have lists of names and COs and nurses who's been mistreating my husband 
that I will disclose in a letter. He's been going through a lot, and I can't do nothing about it, and I need help. And he's, he's finally tested negative for the COVID-19, and he was released in a general for one day. Then an incident occurred, and he has been sent to the hole because they placed him in a cell where they know he don't supposed to be in there with another person. It's a lot going on in the prison system that they're hiding, and when I'm addressing issues, they only refer me to what's online. I already know what's online. You're, you're, I don't know what you're doing in there that my husband and other inmates are going through. So that is my another issue. They are mistreating the inmates like they're not human. And my husband don't even, he's just supposed to be in there for a six-month violation. And and he's been there for two years, of six months. They're losing people in the system. And I'm trying to stay on top of it so mine won't get lost. Okay, Pala, if you would for me, um, I want you to go a little bit more. When I was just speaking with you, you were saying that you feel like, they're retaliating against him since we, I, um, you reached out to me and we sent the letter up there addressing these COVID issues is when all they placed your husband in the wrong wing. Can you talk a little bit about the retaliation and why you feel like they're retaliating against your husband? Okay, I reached out for help with my husband for the COVID issues. But now that we're sending legal uh, help to him, they're refusing to give him legal mail while he's in the hole. Like, I need paperwork from him to move forward. And they, they're refusing his mail. They put him in the wrong ring. So he had a, a incident, an altercation where he had to go in the hole for 20 days. It's going on 20 days now. Okay, so the nurses are not giving him liquid diet. They're, okay, there's one nurse. He was talking to this one nurse, and the CO just sprayed him in the mouth and made, made his gums bleed because he already had fell in handcuffs while they pushed him in a hole. He fell in handcuffs and fractured and broke his jaw. And he has to go to the hospital for that this Tuesday or Wednesday to get his mouth wired up. And they just been they ha he haven't been getting a shower. He said he haven't showered in five days. They're not doing uh cleaning routinely like they said on the CDC. They're not doing none of that in the segregation hole that he's in that he's been in for these past two to three weeks. You mentioned that he did not receive the consent form that I sent for him. Can you go into that for me a little bit? The consent form that was sent to him, he was he was going to send it off, but he had gotten into the hole, and he asked the uh, he asked for his legal mail. He he only asked for his legal mail, and they're refusing to send it to him. He can't get his legal mail. 
And that's an issue. They're not complying with, you know, their guidelines. Okay, Paulette. Okay. I will. I mean, you did great. You you're, you're giving your truth. So don't worry about you know getting nervous or anything because the truth is the weapon. Okay. Um, yeah. I do want to thank you for your time and your boldness and you're willing to fight you, your advocate and his advocate. I want to let you know that you're not. You don't have to fight the uh, Missouri Department of Corrections alone. And hopefully yeah. we can. Not hopefully we will get results. But the last thing I want to wrap this up with, with you with, when we first, when you first reached out to me, what was your biggest concern and fear with your husband in the Missouri Department of Corrections? My biggest fear and concern with this COVID stuff going on was making sure my husband make it home to me and my daughter safely and healthy. That was my number one fear because this COVID is serious. And I want to make sure that the COVID doesn't take my husband away from me and his daughter, our daughter we have together. That was my biggest uh, concern. And I want the justice system to see that all the inmates are still human beings. And they don't have to mistreat the inmates because they're having a bad day or something is not going right in their own lives. That was my, that's my biggest concern. Well, we just heard from uh, a man who is incarcerated in the Pacific um, Missouri Eastern Correctional Center and his wife, who has been struggling to make sure, as you heard her say, that he comes home safely to his family. Uh, Maria, any final thoughts about this particular story? Yes, Kevin. I mean, what I learned from just this, this client here, this person here, if you talk about him losing weight, that's starving, couldn't get his proper meals because his jaw's broken. But what I learned is when I was trying to fight for him, Someone told me, call and have them to do a mental evaluation on him. I'm like, mental evaluation? When you're being starved, that plays a mental effect on your mind. I didn't know that. But then it makes sense, just like Adsig. So they do these things to break down a person's mind, and that causes mental distress and sometimes mental illnesses. And because these men are trying to be so strong, it's something they don't. I'm not going to say acknowledge or they may sweep under the rug like, OK, nothing's really wrong with me. I'm still OK. But no, you just went through a traumatic experience by being starved. And the effects of it, yeah, you lost weight. But what are the mental effects on that? So if our listeners have a loved one that's incarcerated and they're looking for help, how can they reach out? What, they, what, what can they do? Uh, we have MCU. We have Expo St. Louis. We have Our Lives Matter. My um, email is mywayout2018 at gmail.com. I can also be reached at 314-467-8341. And I think one of the most important things that you offer, Expo offers, MCU offers, is that you're not in this alone. Yes, definitely. I did this for a long time alone, Kevin. And there's many reasons that I advocate for families. And you just said the key point. You don't have to be alone. Just like when we went to Jeff City. Normally, I would go by myself. Our lives matter, get the same families that I had, and we'll go. But this time, we had some, somebody from MCU, 
Is somebody from Expo? Did we get the result we wanted? Nah. But you know what the satisfaction to me was? Those families weren't alone. I wasn't alone representing them. We had Expo. We had MCU. And what my promising thing I see is going to get bigger. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep going. Yeah, okay, now you want to say you're going to do video visits. We want Corizon out of there. We want your staff to no longer be able to do IRR and grievances. We want an outside source doing those now so that we can make sure that those individuals are being treated fair. Like this Mr. Pacific, as I'll call him. That IRR that he's writing, he's not going to get that granted. You know why? Because the staff is allegedly the ones who help break the job. So you think they're going to write their own staff up? No. But we have an outside source to go in and investigate that. And they can say, hey, you did this. You're going to be held accountable. So we want that staff to no longer be able to do that. We want Corizon who are killing people legally through medical malpractice to go. We want someone to make sure that the policies that are in play are being followed, like starving people like retaliating on them, tearing up their mail. We need the health department and we need our legislators to go inside these prisons on pop-up visits and make sure this is not happening to these people. Uh, you mentioned something. I'm going to backtrack a little bit um, just uh, to reflect what was told in their story. Uh, you you uh, mentioned mail being withheld. Um, specifically tell me, um, they mentioned legal mail and uh, mail that uh, included, um, I guess, forms to allow information to be sent out. Can you explain what that is and how that plays into to what you do? Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to say maybe a year ago. I'm telling you, I've been having lots of rounds with MDOC. So I contacted legislator, Congress, uh, Leslie Clay. I got a hold to one of his his, I guess his main person, he was nice enough to let me know, like, hey, Miss Miller, I need letters from those people incarcerated. But before you can speak on their behalf, I need a consent form that they're giving you permission. So I drafted up these consent forms and I sent these over to all of my, I call them clients because they are my clients and I care about my clients. I get those letters because I may go to legislator about these issues, but legislator won't be able to speak to me without these consent forms. So I mail these in to them with our lives matter on the front. Some of them get them. Some of them don't. My last two people did not get them. That's the one we're speaking about, Mr. Pacific. And that's the one we're speaking about, Mr. Bontair. They've never gotten those forms. And as I explained to the wardens at those facilities, that is a federal offense. Tampering with mail is a federal offense, whether it's legal mail or not. You should not tamper with a person's regular mail. So that's totally illegal. And it becomes a catch-22 where there, there are folks on the outside who, who can and, and are ready to advocate, but they can't because those forms are being held up whether uh, it seems like it's a retaliation situation, so they can't then um, ask for the help or give permission for you on the outside to provide that help in order to advocate for them. Now, the crazy part about Mr. Pacific, um, 
I don't know if you know the timeline. This went on for about two or three months. When he came back from Potosi, he says, oh, I finally got your consent form. I'm mailing it out today. So tell me what they did with that consent form for two months. What did they do with this consent form? So that is just pure retaliation. They didn't throw his away. They held on to it for two months. He could have gotten his mail at Potosi. You held that mail while he was at Pacific for weeks. Then you sent them over to Potosi and you still held on to that mail. And when he got back, you gave him that mail because we would not stop calling. We would not stop sending letters. I have at least 10 letters because they never would answer, including to the parole board for Mr. Pacific. Okay, and that brings me to my final question for today. Um, so what I'll ask um, every time we meet is just to remind folks if uh, they are listening and they're interested in in advocating and joining this course that's building, what can they do? What's what's that next step? You had mentioned contacting legislators. Why is why is contacting our state legislators so important? Contacting the state legislators because they have power to make change. They can go into those prisons and do safety checks. And I've had some, you know, that interview we did um, a while back with someone in Southeast, they don't bother him anymore. You know why? Because it's what it took over a year, but some of these state reps, state senators, Carla May, Jamila Nasheed, I will take, I will say, thank you. Lacey Clay's office, but I wouldn't let up off of Lacey Clay's office. I kept sending the letters. And guess what? They did check on these issues. And when they did, they sent those letters. They also let my clients know I'm checking in on you. And those prisons bagged up. Those those staff bagged up. So it's important to send those letters to your legislator. I'm not going to say they're going to immediately answer them. But when you have people that are advocating for you and they're representing you, and they know that you're serious and you send them, do they respond the first week? Uh, maybe the second week, maybe the third week, but they did respond. And they did take time out of their day and check in to see what was going on at that prison. And this is the power of unity. Our Lives Matter, Expo, MCU, there are other organizations out here that are just as passionate about the rights of those incarcerated as me. And I take my hat off to them because they care and they're not letting up. Legislative can help us fight. Legislative can help get some of these things that we want done, like those video visits, like Horizon getting out of there, like those IRRs being handled by outside agency, like those policies and procedure put into play or being followed. They have the power to do this. Can I do it alone, Kevin? Probably not. Can you do it alone? Probably not. But if we come together and we keep doing this and we keep making people aware, we can get that change. Okay, great. And, and I'll throw one other uh, action out there. If you need a way to communicate uh, personal stories uh, that we're talking about, forward, forward this podcast. Um, because I think one of the things that has, has definitely um, impacted me is listening to personal stories. Um, yes. When it's abstract, when it's numbers, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. It's hard to be connected to it. But when you hear about somebody who's just months away from coming out and um, he's still being treated this poorly, it, it is, it is uh, 
sad and it's infuriating and it's something that can push us to action. So please share the podcast with others, get them to listen to these stories. And you know what, Kevin, it's like, I could have sat here and told you everything they said in that recording. It's totally different when you hear this from the people that are going through it. I feel their pain, but I don't feel it like they do. Just like I could have said, I told you about what's going on, but for you to listen to these people individually, it does something totally different to you. Because you know, this is not just Maria talking about this. This is what's going on inside of there. The, 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 the fear um, for her husband's life um, expressed in those closing words from the wife um, is powerful. Um, and I invite our listeners to sit with that and um, find that compassion and that empathy to find action and, and work towards yes. changing the situation. Yes. So we're going to hear more from other people in the future uh, episodes and what's going on with the Missouri Department of Corrections and how that's impacting families. So make sure to continue to tune in. Thank you again, Maria, for joining us. And you are the founder of Our Lives Matter and a leader with Expo Incarcerated Persons Organizing. So thank yes. you again for joining us. And to learn more about MCU, go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. 